0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, I know that there are many people that are sick, many things going on in the lives of our, our members and their families, and Father, I lift them up and I'm asking, Father, for you to, to work in a mighty way in their lives, that, Father, their problems can be resolved, that, Father, you would show yourself to be mighty in their, on their behalf. And, Lord, I'm just uh, joining with them here today. In unity, as we bring these requests before you, guide our thoughts here today, guide our uh, understanding of the scriptures, open it up to us, and we pray, Father, that as we study Your Word, that it would become real to us. Change us, Father, for having been here today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Won't y'all be seated? <coughs> if you were choosing. The kind of person that God would use to accomplish some task that he had in mind, what kind of person would you pick? Probably most of us would have a list or at least some idea of the kind of person that we would think that God would use if he had a task in mind that he wanted to accomplish. For example, we would choose probably a righteous person, probably somebody that was obedient, a good leader, Maybe a good example, somebody that's experienced, a hard worker, somebody that's well-educated or gifted. uh, The list could go on and on. These are the kinds of people that come to mind whenever we think of the people that God uses or calls for a particular reason to to do something. The only problem with that is this. Scripture doesn't seem to bear that out. In fact, what it seems as we look at Scripture is that God usually picks the exact opposite whenever he's ready to do something. You can look at David, who was the greatest king of Israel, and David was a scoundrel. David was an adulterer. David was a murderer, and yet God chose him and God used him. Look at Peter. Peter was uh, the pillar of the church in the early church, and yet Peter was rash and rambunctious and like a bull in a china shop, boastful and proud and arrogant and Whenever he thought and, and told everybody that he would never betray the Lord, he did. Look at Paul. Paul was a murderer. Paul was a blasphemer. Paul was anything other than the person you would think that God would choose to build the church upon, but yet he chose Paul and used him. So if anybody was unworthy for the task, it would be these men. And so while we have to ask this question, so why would God choose them? Why would God choose them for his work? Well, let's go step farther. Why would God choose you or me or any of the people that God does choose? Why would he do it? Well, today we're going to answer that question, and we're going to talk about why God chooses unworthy people to use. Why does God choose the ones that we would classify or consider to be the losers The last ones that uh, would come to mind, those that would be unworthy in some form or fashion. Now when I use the term unworthy, as sort of a catch-all term. Let me give you some examples of people that would fall into this category. And you may think of a better word for this, but unworthy is the word that I'm using. Somebody that doesn't have their act together and is sinful. Somebody that doesn't uh, always do the things that God would want them to do. Somebody that's weak somebody that's uninspiring, somebody that's uneducated, brash, arrogant, undependable, someone whose faith is very weak, someone that is inexperienced, shy, lazy, selfish, greedy, the list goes on and on. But you understand where I'm coming from. In a category that I'm terming or uh, calling unworthy, uh, anybody, the, the, the least person that we would think of, you know, the last one on the list, the bottom of the totem pole, This is the person that I'm calling unworthy. And um, not being judgmental, I'm just simply throwing out a category and saying it seems that as you look at Scripture, the people that God chooses to use often come out of that category in some form or fashion. Now this um, sermon applies to every one of us who feels unworthy or unworthy of God's attention, unworthy of God's effort. For those of us that feel like a failure... And I'm sure there's a lot of us in here that do that. We want to be a good father, but we're not. So we feel like a failure. And we look at ourselves and think, how could God ever love me, let alone use me? I want to be a good parent, but I'm not. So I consider myself to be a failure. I consider myself to be unworthy of God's love, attention, usefulness. Um, Those of you who only dream of living a life that might count for something of eternal value... Those of you that have passed up opportunities to minister and you look back and you feel guilty because you said no, because you didn't follow through, because you didn't do what you felt God was calling you to do. Some of you have been, maybe at some time in your life, been called to full-time Christian service, the mission field, the ministry, and you said no many years ago and you've never looked back, but yet you felt guilty for it. You felt like a failure because of it. Those of you that have only dreamed of breaking an addiction that you've had for many years, those of you that have been in prison, the list goes on and on. Because you can look out at this congregation and see an example of each one of those people. For you, this is what this sermon is for. It's for you today. Because we're going to be talking about and answering the question, why does God use people like me that are unworthy to be used? Why does God even want to? Because, you see, this is an important question for you and me to answer. Uh, If I feel unworthy, if I feel like a loser, if I feel that God can never use me, then I'm never ever going to step out. Never. And so this is an important question because if these are the people that God uses, then I want to know why. Why does God pick them? There must be some reason behind it. We're going to be looking today at an example of that kind of a person, um, Gideon in the book of Judges as one of those people. The last person you'd ever think that God would choose to use in a mighty way, but yet he does. There's more told to us about this particular person in the book of Judges than any of the other judges in the entire book. There's more information on him. And what we're going to do today is begin by looking at chapter 6. And like I said, I'm skipping over a lot of judges here. I'm not going to sh- look at each one of them because some of them just don't have enough information on them. But Gideon does. And let me just kind of set the stage for where we're at in this, okay? You know the book of Judges. I've explained the setting to you. Um, This is after Joshua has died and Israel's fallen back into idolatry, which they do over and over and over again. And God would send somebody into the life of the Israelites to bring them into bondage and to cause them pain and suffering. They'd cry out to God. God would then send a deliverer, referred to in the Bible as a judge. And the judge would deliver them. Now, this is one of those men considered to be a judge in Israel. And you're going to look at him and you're going to think, well, why? Why did God ever choose this guy? Let's begin by looking at this. We're in Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 to start with. Let me read this for you. It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, they fell into idolatry. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Now the Midianites lived south and east of, of the land of Israel. And, and the Lord has now allowed the Midianites for seven years to come in and ransack the land of Israel each and every harvest. That's when they come. And he goes on to say in verse 2, Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts caves and strongholds. Now, this is the land of milk and honey, the, the land of blessing for the Israelites. They built their homes there, but yet every year at harvest time, the Midianites would like a swarm of locusts to come into the land and settle there for months at a time, consuming everything that the land had to produce. All of their harvest was taken. They are, are pushed into living in caves, and holes in the ground because they're trying to get away from the Midianites. And it has been a horrible seven years. And it says that um, in verse 3, "...whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys." They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them um, or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now this is a horrible situation because they are bringing with them everybody. They bring their tents, their families, their wives, their kids, their soldiers. They just move in on that portion of Israel and consume everything that the land has to offer. Now here's a question as I look at this text. Israel goes through it now for seven years, and they start calling out to the Lord for help. And I'm puzzled by how it is that a a group of people who can believe in God enough to call on Him when they're in trouble, and yet worship idols on the other hand, because this is a real puzzle when it comes to the nation of Israel. And here's what I think goes on with the nation of Israel. Israel always believed and understood that God was real. Their problem wasn't with understanding or believing in him. Their problem was with obeying him. Because the law of Moses was very oppressive and they didn't like it. They didn't like all those rules. And the idols allowed them to have freedom. They could worship and be religious and yet do as they pleased. And so they're trying to live that way, appease their conscience. And it's not until God presses them into a dilemma that they call back out to him again and say, okay, okay, we've had enough. And so God then sends a deliverer or a judge. This happens throughout their history. It really does. And it goes on down. Let's jump down to verses 11 and 12. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the yoke of Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, uh, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, the setting. Here's Gideon in a wine press, thrashing wheat. Now, this you got to catch this, okay? You thresh wheat on a threshing floor, not a wine press. It's usually up high on a, a hilltop where the wind can catch the chafe and blow it away. You put grapes in a wine press. They're usually lower. Come down the hill with the grapes, dump them in, and press them. That's where the wine press is. Here's Gideon in a wine press, threshing wheat, trying to get the chafe off so he can get at least enough to feed his family. (laughs) I can just imagine. Now, here's a wine press. It's usually like a cistern or uh, built up on each side to hold the juice. He's down in this wine press, threshing wheat, and he looks up every now and then to make sure the Midianites aren't there. And he looks up one time and there sits the Lord. And he doesn't immediately know who he is. He doesn't recognize him, but the Bible says the angel of the Lord, which is usually a pre-incarnate or before he took on flesh appearance of Christ. It's hard for us to imagine, but in the Old Testament, Christ appeared all the time before he became human. So here he is, and the Lord says this to Gideon. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior." Now, theologians debate this statement and wonder, what in the world is he talking about? Is he being sarcastic? Because when you read it, your first impression is, well, maybe he's just being sarcastic. You know, it's like, what are you hiding from down there, you mighty warrior, you know? We're going to talk about that a little bit later in this message today, but I want to just bypass that now and come back to it. We're going to jump down to verses 14 through 16 here in Judges 6. It says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Now, you just got to put yourself in that place and imagine this. Here's the man who was scared to death of the Midianites hiding in a wine press. The Lord appears to him and he says, I'm going to send you out there and you're going to kill every one of them. And he begins to think, Well, what are you talking about? Because he says, out of the tribe of Manasseh, which he was, the tribe of Manasseh, <laughs> he says, My clan, my group of people, my family group, he said, they're the weakest of, of all of the tribe of Manasseh. And in my family, I'm the least. I'm the low man on the totem pole. I'm the last man anybody would ever think of to send out there to fight for them. So what are you talking about? Because at this time, remember, there's no way that Israel is going to defeat the Midianites. They are a mighty, mighty fortress of people. God is promising here. Now, I want you to remember this, okay? Throughout the next couple of weeks, we're going to begin the story of Gideon. God is promising Gideon this day that Gideon is going to defeat the, the Midianites. He's telling him this. He said, I'm going to do it. You're going to destroy them. All I need you to do is step up to the plate and do this. So now he has to respond. You see, this is what happens to us. God will call you to do something. He'll lay something on your heart. He'll impress it upon your spirit. And now you've got to make a decision. Am I going to believe what God is telling me and step out in faith and take that first step, or am I not? Because the majority of the time, it seems like we as Christians back away from that out of fear, out of uh, a realization that we're not adequate for the job, the realization that we're losers, that we're not worthy, we can't do it, and so nothing ever gets done in the kingdom of God because we're not willing to step out. Now, Gideon is just that way. Now he says, Now well, wait a minute, Lord, I want to go get a fix us a meal here. We're going to sit down and talk about this. So he goes and he prepares a meal and he brings the meat and he brings the bread and he brings the gravy for the meat. And God says to, uh, the Lord says to him, Put it down on that rock and pour the gravy out over the meat and the bread. And the text tells us that the Lord takes a staff and he touches the rock and it consumes the entire thing. Just burns it up, as wet as it was. Now that got Gideon's attention. Gideon said, well, maybe this is the Lord, because he was questioning that. So here's what happens, verses 24 through 27. It says, so Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah uh, of the Abyssalites. That same night, the Lord said to him, take a second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height using the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, He did it at night rather than in daytime. Now let's stop and picture this, okay? Now it's interesting because it seems like God is saying, you're going to go out here and you're going to fight the Midianites and you're going to kill them, every one of them. But before you do that, I'm going to give you a baby test, a baby step here that you can do and, and see what I can do for you. You go over there to your father's house now. This is where Gideon basically lived, under his father's house. Tear down his altar. To the pagan god Baal. Tear down the Asherah pole, which was like a totem pole with all the faces of the gods on it. Tear it all down, build an altar, and make a burnt offering to me. And he does. Now, the next day, the townspeople are wondering who did it. They found out Gideon did it and they try to kill him. They come after him. His father steps in and saves him, but nonetheless, he does. now, all through this process, Gideon is having to make the decision, am I going to follow him and do what he says and listen to him, or am I going to back away and say, this is too much for me, I can't handle the heat, I'm getting out of the kitchen. Now, the rest of the story goes like this, and I'm just going to tell you what happens, and we'll talk about it over the next two weeks. But the rest of the story basically is this. Gideon puts out a call. There were about an, it was an army of approximately 32,000 soldiers that show up, They're going to fight the Midianites. And God says to them, you got too many. And he whittles them down to 300. And Gideon takes that 300 and defeats the armies of the Midianites. Now, how many did he defeat? You're not going to believe this. Now watch this. In Judges chapter 7, verse 12, here's what it says about the armies of the Midianites. It says, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. Their whole group of of Midianites moved in there. Now it goes on to tell us in chapter 8 that they had an army of 135,000 swordsmen. Those are just the army of fighters, not counting everybody else that came came along with them. And God tells Gideon, you whittle this army down to 300, and you go out there and you face them and you fight them. Now, nobody would do that. Nobody. Let alone that I think I'm a loser and a nobody and the least of all people that you would call. The fact that you called me scares me to death, but the fact that you're calling me to do this, you are crazy at least if you, if you think this can happen. But yet he did it. We're going to look at it. We're going to read about it. It's going to be a, a, a miraculous event that takes place in the way God does it. Now, the point of this whole story, and this is the point that's really going to carry through for the next couple of weeks, the point of it is this, and listen very carefully. God uses unworthy people to accomplish unbelievable things. All they have to do is to go whenever he calls. And don't miss this, okay? God uses people that are unworthy to accomplish unbelievable things. The only difference, the only thing they have to do is to step up to the plate. And when God says to do this, just do it. Because otherwise you'll never see the miracles. Now, that's the theme that's going to run throughout these next few weeks. Here's the thing that I want to answer today. This is the question I want to deal with, okay? Why does God use unworthy people? Why doesn't God look for the champions? Why doesn't God bring out the qualified? Why doesn't God bring out those that are able? Those that would make the most sense. Why does God look for people like us? Why? I want to share with you three reasons why, very quickly. Here's the first one. God uses unworthy people because that's the only kind there are. That's the only kind of people there are. You see, here's our problem as Christians. We have this distorted view of God. We have this view of God that says that God can only use, and and these are the kind that God looks for, at least the way we think. God is looking for the strong The good, the righteous, the gifted, the qualified. That's who God looks for when he has a job to be done. God would never look at me. Because you see, we know who we are. We know our shortcomings. We know our failures, our weaknesses. And we're always comparing ourselves. And we look at other people that just seem to just do things for God. And they answer the call and they accomplish great things. And we think to ourselves, I would love to be that kind of person, but I'm just not. See, we know who we are. The problem is not who we are. The problem is that we think God doesn't use people like us. God will use those kind of people that I just talked about, the, the mighty, but, but not me. So you see, here's the problem. Every time we sense in our spirit that God is leading us to go talk to that individual that doesn't know the Lord, we'll, we'll make an excuse because God knows I can't talk. Every time God says, you're the one that I want to go teach that class, we'll bow out make an excuse. Because, you see, we realize that we're, we're failures and we couldn't possibly do that. And every time God says, I want you to become a better father, Lord, I'm trying the best I can. You know I'm limited. I, I just can't. I can't. And whatever it is, whatever God leads us to do, we make excuses And say to ourselves, God can't, never would use a person like me. And the Bible teaches the exact opposite. Because God always used people like us. It's the only kind He ever used. Because that was the only kind that was available. Nobody. Nobody's qualified. See, this is a shock to us because it goes against everything we've always believed. Nobody is qualified to serve the living God. Nobody. In Isaiah sixty-four six, it says this: All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All of us. There are no exceptions. You line the humanity humanity up shoulder to shoulder, and they're all the same. God says you're all unclean. You've all fallen. You all, your best things you can do, the most righteous things you can do, are like filthy rags in my sight. Who do you think you are? And yet, those are the very people God says, "Now come on, just listen to me, because I'm going to use you to fight an army a hundred times bigger than you are. I'm going to use you to accomplish things you never thought, never imagined, or thought for a moment you could do. I'm going to do things with you, but you have to come and don't don't give me this mess about not being qualified because nobody is. That's what you have to learn. Nobody is. But there's always some, there will always be some that put themselves up there on a the pedestal and say, well, I think I am. I'm a good person. I obey God's commandments. I go to church every Sunday. I'm a pretty good speaker. I, can, I, I, I think I am. And that very statement disqualifies you. James chapter 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So the first time you poke your head up out of that cistern and say, hey, I can do it, God says, uh-uh, not you, because you think you can. See, God's looking for the people like Gideon. God's looking for the people that say, <laughs> I can't do this, but I'll, t- I'll take a step of faith here and I'll, I'll, I'll try. God says, that's the man I want. You see, the difference between the person, the Christian now, the difference between that person that steps up and and is used by God and the difference in you and me who may sit and and say, I can't do this. The difference is very simple. One was willing and one wasn't. One was no more gifted. One was no more uh, able than the other. They're, They're both unworthy in the eyes of God, but one was willing. See, there's the difference. When God came to Gideon and he popped his head up over that cistern, God said, you're the one I want. You're the one I can use. So why does God use unworthy people? Number one, because that's the only kind of people there are. We have got to stop comparing ourselves to other people. In concluding that we can't be used because you're the very person God wants. Now, here's the second point, very important. Why does God use unworthy people? Number two, because God is going to change you anyway. You see, God's going to change you anyway, so it doesn't really matter that you're unworthy. So point number two, God is going to change you anyway, so just go ahead and do it. Go ahead and move. Go ahead and go. Because God's plan is to change you anyway. Listen to this verse. I have given you this verse many times. And uh, I hope that it's sinking in. But it's a very important verse. Just listen to it. It's in Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. Philippians two thirteen says this. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's God that's working in you could do these two things. Now listen to me. It's God that creates within you the desire to do it. God's Spirit speaks to your spirit and lays it upon your heart, we say. This is the terminology we use. That God has called you with this idea that you can do this particular task. And it's God that works in you to have that desire. And then it's God that also works in you to get it done. He works to bring about the will, and he also works to bring about the act. God does that. This is such an important verse that you and I have got to come to grips with. Whatever it is that is God's good purpose, what God wants to accomplish, God picks a nobody like Gideon or a nobody like you and me, and he says to us, are you going to trust me enough to step out in faith and to believe that there's nobody any better than you, Because I'm going to take you, the failure that you are, and I'm going to make you into what I need you to be. Do you believe that? And once in a while, there will be somebody that's willing to step out with what little bit of faith they have and say, yeah, I'll try that. I believe you can. And that's when you see the miracles happen. That's when you see things accomplished you never thought were possible. Never imagined. Because God did it, you see. God did it. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, it says this. It says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Well, how are these things accomplished? Well, it's not by your might or your power, your abilities, your education, your experience, your intelligence. It's not by any of those things. It's by my spirit my spirit working in you, gets the job done. I'm not looking for a champion, he says. I need a Gideon. You see, God doesn't call those who are qualified. God qualifies those that he calls. God's not looking for somebody worthy. God uses unworthy people, and he molds them into what he wants them to be. He gives them what is necessary. So now listen very carefully. I want to go back to chapter 6 of Judges and verse 12 to where when the Lord first met Gideon and he makes this statement, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. What does he mean and why did he say that? He wasn't being sarcastic. He says, I see who you are and I see who you're going to be. There you are hiding down in that sister, and I see you. He said, you're going to be a mighty warrior. You don't know that. You don't even believe it yet. But you see, I, I see who you're going to become. Gideon, I'm not asking you to be strong. I'm not asking you to be great. I'm not asking you to bring to me all of your gifts and talents. I'm just asking you, to so go out there and do it. Just be available. And Gideon, if you will do that, here's my promise to you, that you will defeat the Midianites, every single one of them. 135,000 swordsmen, they'll all die. Will you just come on? Will you just trust me? So here we are, same things being asked of you and me. You know right now in your heart the things that God's laid upon your heart, not anybody else's but yours, whatever that may be. I want you to go and minister to this person, and you make excuses. I want you to go teach this, and you make excuses. I want you to be this kind of person, and I want you to start working toward this, and you make excuses. I can't do that. See, I can't. And God says, I know you can't. Nobody can. I'm not... I'm just telling you, I will do this with you. I will make you into this. But but you've got to move. And every one of us, at times in our lives, you you can pinpoint the moment when you felt called of God to do something. And I'm not talking about on some grand stage. I'm talking about in everyday life, something that God would want you to do to further the kingdom. And you said, no. And you said no because you were afraid. You said no because you didn't feel adequate. And God says, I want you to do it because I'm not asking you to bring your talents here. I'm just asking you to be available. And let me make you into what I want you to be. Here's the third reason why God uses unworthy people. That is this, because God wants the glory. This is very important, and we need to come to understand this, that God's looking for the glory here, okay? Now, you can, people say, well, God is just an egomaniac. You know what? That's not true. But God wants the glory because God is trying to draw people to himself. And if God was an egomaniac, as long as he created me and makes the rules, he can be whatever he wants to be. It doesn't matter. But the Bible teaches this very clearly throughout the scripture that God is interested in the glory and he doesn't want it to go to us. He wants it to go to him. He will honor us. I don't need the honor and the accolades of people. God says, I will give that to you. Watch this verse. Judges chapter 7, verse 2. This is after Gideon has gathered his army of 32,000 men. And it says here in verse 2 that the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me, saying, my own strength has saved me. Now look at what he's saying. He said, oh, you're not going into battle with an army that big, because you know what, if you have victory, you're going to turn around and say, hey, we did it, we don't need you, Lord. I want this to be clearly understood, that when this battle's finished, nobody else in the world could have done it but me. And you need to understand that, and so does the rest of the world. So I'm getting the honor and the glory for this, and not you and your army. This is the reason why you go into battle with 300 men. See, Paul understood that. Paul said, I can do all things in Philippians 4.13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul lists all the accomplishments. He said, look, I can do it. I'm not qualified for it, but I can do it because it's him working in me that brings this about. The only thing I did was answer the call. If There was a great surgeon who performed this great miraculous surgery, this groundbreaking surgery, and he's being interviewed by the media. Do they honor the surgeon or do they honor the scalpel that he used? They honor the surgeon. It would be foolish to think the scalpel had anything to do with it. And that, my friend, is what you and I are. We are the instruments that God uses to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. And that's all. It's the hands of the master that makes the difference. Gideon was a nobody, a farmer. But when put into the hands of the master, he became a great warrior. And you and I are the same way. God chose to use you and me. As unqualified and as unworthy as we are, God chose to use us for one reason, and that is this that we make Him look good. We make Him look good. And that's really, in the end, what this is all about because when the world, your friends, your family, look at you and see what God did with you, they don't glorify you, they glorify God and they come to Him because they've seen what He's doing in your life. God always chooses the losers. You understand that? God always chooses the ones that are unworthy because it's in those people That God can show himself powerful. And nobody would ever think anything other than that. It had to be God because only God could have done it. Only God could have done it. God just wants you and me to say this one thing, okay? God doesn't care what you've got, what what you bring to the table, who you are. God just wants one thing out of you and me. Okay, I'll go. I'll do it. Whatever you've laid on my heart, I'll do it. Scared to death, shaking in my boots, not a whole lot of faith, but Lord, I will take that step and then I will watch you work and I will trust you. What a little bit of faith I have, I will trust you. And that's really what we're talking about here through this little study of, of Gideon in this next few weeks. I want to leave you with these two thoughts, okay? Something to think about. Think about this, and you can discuss this in your groups tonight, but here it is. First... Thought is this that if God already knows that you're a failure, a loser, then what do you have to lose by trying? You see, part of the reason why we don't step out in faith and try things for God is because even though we know we can't do it, we know we're losers, we know that we're not worthy, we know all of our faults and our weaknesses and our failings. We don't want anybody else to know, especially God. Pastor, if I step out there and it doesn't do right or it doesn't go well, and believe me, it won't. (laughs) That's part of growing. But if I step out there, then God's going to know what a failure I am. And I got news for you. He already knows that. That's the reason he called you to do it. So if God already knows it, then what have I got to lose if I just try? Here's the second thought I want you to contend with, and that is this. If God's going to change you anyway so that you can do the job, just think what you have to gain. If God says, come on, I'm going to change you to make you into the person to do this job that I've given you, then just imagine what all you have to gain if you'll just step out and trust him. Now, guys, I don't know what it is that God has laid upon your heart. I don't know how God is working in your life. But I know that he is because he says he does that with everyone that he calls, everyone that is a believer. But there will be times in your life where there will be simple things where God just impresses upon you. I want you to go put your arm around this person and pray with them. Don't make excuses. Just do it and see what God does. There will be times when God says, and there's a, there's a, a, a challenge here, a, a need, and you say, wow, I, you know, lead a ministry or teach a class or whatever, and, and you in the past have made excuses, and now you're going to say, okay, no more. And in your heart, you know that God's leading you to do this. Just stop running. Just take God at his word and say, I'll trust you. I'll come up out of that cistern that I'm in, that wine press, and I'll do what you called me to do, and I'm not going to hide anymore. There's any number of things, and I can't tell you what those things are, but you know. You know what they are already. All I'm asking you to do, and all that God is expecting you to do, is to just step out. Just get out of the wine press and go do it and see what God does with you. It'll be a miraculous thing in your life. If you're here this morning and you need to understand what the gospel of Christ really is, let me read you this verse, the last verse here for the day. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Here's what it says. It says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Every one of us is a sinner. We're all losers. And God said to us, I love you so much that I'm going to send my son to take care of your sin. And Jesus died on the cross. He took all, the guilt of all of your sin. All of your guilt he took upon himself. And he paid for it. And he says that I give to you my righteousness. I declare you to be righteous in my sight. You are perfect because you are covered by the blood of my son. That's why we are going to heaven when we die. That's why we I can stand up here and tell you that I'm absolutely certain that when I pass from this life, I will be in the presence of the Lord. Not because I'm a good guy. Ask my wife. Okay? But because I'm covered in the blood of Christ and I am forgiven. And so can you. You can be that. You reach out by faith and you accept the gift that he gives you. His son. Just put your trust in it. Just call upon his name. The Bible says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's you. You. The loser, the unworthy person you already know yourself to be. God says that's you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. If you're here this morning and you need to put your faith in Christ, then right now, right where you sit, you can do that. Just turn to God in faith and express to God this statement. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I realize that. But I believe what the Bible says. That Jesus Christ died on a cross for me. He died to pay for my sins. And I'm trusting Him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. And the Bible says that you have eternal life. Whosoever believes has eternal life. For the rest of us, listen very carefully. You and I have to make decisions every day. Am I going to believe God and trust him in the little things of life? This has nothing to do with salvation. This has to do with the little decisions we make throughout the day. Why don't you test God? Say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do it your way. And tomorrow, when I feel led to do something, whatever it may be, and as scary and as frightening as it may be, I'm going to step out in faith and follow you. Will you do that? Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, Lord, we thank you for loving us. You have saved our souls by the grace of God, and you accomplished great things in our lives by the grace of God. Lord, may we be found faithful. Lord, you're not asking for great people. You're just asking for a little bit of faith that we would trust you with these issues of life step out each and every day and obey you. Lord, may we be that kind of people. May we come back rejoicing and giving testimony to the miraculous things you've done in our lives simply because we came up out of the wine press and we said, okay, Lord, I'll go. I'll go. Help us, Lord, to be that people. In Jesus' name, amen.